0: this is planetary radio welcome back everyone I'm Matt Kaplan what's the subject you least expected to hear about on our show about space exploration what's that you said sex Eh. oh I'm sorry that just happens to be one of the many topics covered by this week's guest in her great new book Stay with us for a conversation with Betty Ann Kevlis about Almost Heaven, the story of women in space. Bruce Betts will be here later, and he's bringing the pizza moon. First, though, here's Emily. She's thinking longer than miles, but shorter than light years. I'll be right back.
1: I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Who determined what the distance between the Earth and Sun is, and how did they do it? The distance between the Earth and the Sun is enormous. It would take 12,000 Earths to bridge the distance between the Sun and the Earth. For this reason, it is convenient to use the Earth's distance from the Sun as a length unit for describing solar system distances. Scientists call this distance an astronomical unit. One astronomical unit the distance between the Earth and Sun, is about 150 million kilometers, or about 93 million miles. The first known determination of the length of the astronomical unit was carried out by the ancient Greek astronomer Aristarchus around 275 BC. He estimated the angle between the Moon and the Sun at the moment when the Moon was exactly half full. In this way, the Moon, Earth, and Sun formed a giant right triangle with the Earth at the right angle. Aristarchus' estimate of the angle, 87 degrees, was not very accurate, causing him to estimate the sun to be only 20 times farther from the Earth than the moon, so he was a factor of 20 off. This estimate was adopted by Ptolemy and, 14 centuries later, by Copernicus. How was this estimate improved upon? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out.
0: Raised in Southern California, Yale University faculty member Betty Ann Holtzman-Kevlis was a science columnist for the Los Angeles Times. She published Watching the Wild Apes in 1976. It was the first of three award-winning and popular books about primates. Ten years later, she wrote the much-praised Naked to the Bone, a history of medical imaging. Her latest work is Almost Heaven. The Story of Women in Space. It is a fascinating combination of living history, analysis, and tribute to the women, mostly Russian and American, who have gone where very few men or women have gone before. Professor Kevles, welcome to Planetary Radio. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with uh, one of the more obvious questions. Why was it so many years between Valentina Tereshkova and Sally Ride, the first American woman in space?
2: It's because women played a different role in Russian-Soviet culture than they did in American culture in the early uh, 1960s. In America in 1960, it was just unthinkable to send a woman into a dangerous situation, uh, and it was also unthinkable to put a woman, now if we pass through with the mercury uh, into the uh, Gemini and Apollo phases of the uh, first program, Uh, It was unthinkable to put a woman together with a man in a capsule that was so small that they'd have to be sitting together for several days, maybe (laughs) never changing their clothes. It was just beyond the range of anything Americans could cope with in those days. And the Russians didn't have that problem.
0: And yet, as your book points out, even the Russians, there was very much a a double standard going on here. There was the public face that uh, needed to show Soviet womanhood could go into space, but the women themselves were not always treated with great respect, and and this was something that was found by some of the uh, first American women to go over who were going to participate uh, in the, in the MIR uh, space station program.
2: Uh, that's true, and what's interesting is that while American culture changed enormously from 1960 to 1980 to 2003... The role of women in the United States and Western Europe is almost unrecognizable. The the change and what people like me would call the the strides, the improvements, are unbelievable Mm -hmm. in terms of how fast it happened. In the Soviet Union, it was different. Women were needed. Lots and lots of men died during World War II. They needed women. Mm. There had also been, in the workforce, there had also been a tradition in Russia, as in most of uh, continental Europe, of having women become scientists and mathematicians, which has never caught on as much in the English-speaking world, and I don't really understand all of you know the reasons why it didn't happen. It didn't happen.
0: Now things have changed, of course, as you've said, and your book does. But they didn't
2: change in, but in, in the Soviet Union, they really haven't changed very much.
0: Well, I'm saying really they've changed in this country. In whereas... this country,
2: they changed remarkably.
0: And your book traces uh, really the evolution of that change through. Uh, the women who were the players, the women who fought for the opportunity to become astronauts, to go into space. You spent a good deal of time with uh, with a lot of these uh, these pioneers, uh, and people can read their stories uh, in your book, Almost Heaven, the Story of Women in Space. You know, I, I know because you told me before we started recording that uh, you hate to play favorites, but there were some people that you spent more time with, and were very, very impressed by. I mean, I, I guess, really, was there, were there any of the uh, the women astronauts that you, you weren't wonderfully impressed with?
2: Um, there were some who were less forthcoming
0: hmm. than
2: others. Uh, one or two uh, said they did not want to be interviewed because they did not believe that women were different from men. They said, I'm an astronaut, not a woman, not a man. I'm an astronaut, so I don't want to be interviewed. There's nothing to say. So that was a particular point of view for several women, uh, and I accepted it. And obviously, did not interview them since I didn't want to be interviewed. I found that there was a slight difference between uh, the first women, and we. Although there were six women in the first group, two years later there was another group. So that made with two women. So that they were eight women who were the uh, initial women to uh, integrate the uh, astronaut corps, and they were all. All wonderful there isn't i mean i didn 't Judy Resnick had died. I spoke to her father. Mm. They were all absolutely remarkable, wonderful people with very uh distinct personalities that you you couldn 't make a category about them except that they were so independent and ambitious and determined
0: they wanted to be leaders
2: they wanted to be leaders, they wanted to be pace setters uh, they they wanted to do something that no one had ever done before uh, they did not want to have. They did not need role models, but they all became role models. Mm-hmm. And when they were role models, they were they took that job very responsibly because they knew that younger women would look to them.
0: Did they, as independent as they were, did they still form a, a community unto themselves?
2: No, they didn't. Uh, and part of it was because NASA wisely did not want them to do that. So they were, when they were given uh, offices, uh, the space center, they were always they shared their offices with men. They, did not, they were not all grouped together. And they were women who, as one of them said to me, well, you know, we were always the only woman in the, in the class, or one of a few, and we were used to having male friends. So they continued to have male friends as well as women friends, but they were not really close to each other because they were just not used to that. Later on, the women who followed in the next, you know, 20 years, were women who had gone to school with other women in graduate school and undergraduate school and were used to having friendships with other women. So you have actually a different kind of personality coming along.
0: I was about to ask you, how would you characterize these women who came later? Uh, How were they different from those first pioneers, that first group?
2: Well, many of them said that they decided to become astronauts when Sally Ride came and talked to their their class in graduate
0: hmm. school. Speaking of role models.
2: So there she was, and Sally Ride has done a remarkable job both recruiting other women to become astronauts, and now she has something called the Sally Ride Clubs, which is uh, aimed at young girls uh, to try to get this is a club that you kind of get to on the internet. Uh, and it's to encourage little girls to study mathematics and engineering and science and become something that they might not have become without this encouragement.
0: You uh, write extensively about uh, the experience that uh, Shannon Lucid had. Uh, In fact, you spent a good deal of time talking with her. Uh, She was, of course, the first American woman to uh, be on a space station and was there with uh, Russian cosmonauts. So here were the two worlds coming together, and uh, her experience was was fascinating.
2: It's also interesting that when I was in uh, Russia, where I went to interview the Russians, Every time I mention Sally Ride, people burst out into smiles, and they said, in whatever language they could do it, whether it was English or whether someone was translating, that they they love Shannon.
3: Hmm.
2: Uh, Shannon seems to have uh, the kind of personality that um, makes people want to be with her, and they don't get tired of her company.
0: And uh, she did, uh, she's done remarkably well in, in space, uh, even stayed in, uh, in terrific shape, better shape than, I, I, I take it, many uh, many male astronauts and cosmonauts have, uh, have come back from long stays in orbit.
2: Yes. Uh, she used the treadmill every day uh, as she, for hours, although you know, she hated it, but she did it. Uh, that is the only explanation that anybody has for why she was able to walk off uh, the shuttle, which brought her back after months on Mir. Uh, but it may be something else. We really don't know, but she certainly did uh, come back physically healthy. She also was able to keep herself healthy mentally. She uh, took time to rest. She read lots of books. Uh, she did all the experiments she had to do. Uh, she uh, was kind of a, an integral part of this little family with the two Russians, and uh, they all learned to make jokes together, to have good Mm -hmm. meals together. She just uh, did everything right.
0: I think we'll take a break now, but I did want to get into uh, talking about Shannon Lucid and the terrific both mental and physical shape that she stayed in because uh, uh, one of the major topics in your book, late in the book, is uh, the lack of medical and uh, psychological research on uh, women in space, in fact, to a large degree, on uh, on men in space and the difference between them. There's so many topics we could talk about in your book, but uh, in our limited time, uh, if it's all right, I think we'll come back and talk a little bit about that. That's fine. We're talking with Betty Ann Kevlis, Professor Betty Ann Kevlis of Yale University. She has written Almost Heaven, the Story of Women in Space, which is uh, out now, has been published by Basic Books. Planetary Radio will continue in just a moment. Join Pasadena's other big New Year's party. Wild About Mars comes to the Pasadena Convention Center on Saturday and Sunday, January 3 and 4. Join Buzz Aldrin, Ray Bradbury, and Bill Nye the Science Guy as the first Mars exploration rover arrives at the Red Planet. Order your discounted tickets by calling 1-877-PLANETS today. That's 1-877-PLANETS or online at planetary.org. Matt Kaplan back with Planetary Radio, and our special guest this week, Betty Ann Kevles of Yale University, former science writer for the LA Times, has written many excellent science books, the latest of which is Almost Heaven, the story of women in space, uh, for which she did extensive research and has spoken to uh, many of those women who have uh, slipped the surly bonds of Earth. Betty Ann, I said that if we could, we could come back and talk about this glaring hole, at least that's what it appears to be, as you documented, in the research that has been done by NASA, the uh, nearly total lack of research on the physiologies of men and women, how they differ, and uh, the advantages and disadvantages that each might have uh, as spacefarers.
2: Well, there has been a lot of, of studies, of medical studies, of the, the astronauts on uh, you know the, the kinds of studies that are not... Uh, sexual. Uh, We know about heart rate. Uh, We know a little bit about what happens to the brain. We know about kidney function. Uh, All these things are very important. Uh, So NASA has not been uh, neglecting following uh, the health of astronauts, but they have been apparently for whatever reason avoiding any effort to look at hormone differences, uh, to look at psychological or emotional differences, especially in terms of people staying a long time. uh, Now that we're thinking about going to Mars, we need to know if men and women are the same when it comes to being locked up in a relatively small space for a year at a time. NASA has not really investigated this, uh, and they have avoided investigating this. At one point uh, a couple of years ago, when Dan Golden was the administrator, he suggested an all-female crew. Mm -hmm. And all the women astronauts said, absolutely not. But there was a woman then who was the head of NASA's uh, chief scientist uh, named Kathy Olson, and she thought it was a very good idea, mm-hmm. uh, but she was uh, ignored. And uh, it t- seems to come down to several things. The women don't want to be separated as women, they think that it would be um, that someone would find something about them that would make them inferior, which has been, of course, what has happened to women over and over again in the past. So this is not a. A crazy feeling.
0: But it hardly seems more likely than finding factors which would show that they are superior to me.
2: Absolutely. They just don't want to know. Mm. And they have also uh, taken advantage or gone along with a general tendency of all the astronauts who have, uh, according to present laws, uh, the right not to have their medical um, information uh, made public. Mm. And most of them have refused. Not all of them. Uh, but so we don't even know little things that would be kind of interesting to know, and it might have some medical significance. We, have, we know very little about how women in general respond in terms of their menstrual cycles because they have not wanted this to be reported.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, we don't know if there are, in fact, differences between the way a man's heart and a woman's heart responds to weightlessness. Uh, so even these apparently neutral Uh, physiological phenomena might be different between men and women but they have not looked at it that
0: way. This strikes me as a possibly uh, dangerous lack of data in view of the fact that someday a crew is going to go to Mars there will surely be both men and women on that crew. They're going to spend two years in fairly hard radiation, in zero-G and low-G, and in very tight quarters. And it would seem that we ought to know how, uh, how things are going to work out, not just physiologically and psychologically, but, shall we say, sociologically. Uh, all the speculation of the, the tensions and other things that could happen, uh, and frequently do happen, when men and women are put together in, uh, in a tight space for a long time.
2: You know, it's also true that it happens with men and men. I mean, the, whole question, true, of the whole question of sexuality has been unexplored, as far as we know, uh, by NASA's medical people. They have always assumed that everybody who is going up is heterosexual, and there's no real reason to believe that. We certainly now it wouldn't even be legal to uh, not take people because of their sexual orientation.
0: <laughs> don't ask, don't tell in orbit.
2: Right. But the assumption always has been that nothing could happen between men, and uh, hmm. this is mind-boggling when we consider the way we know that men behave in prison uh, when there are no women, uh, that sexual sexuality has its outlets whether or not we approve of them.
0: Now, you asked some of the, the women who've uh, uh, been in space uh, about this and, and also pointedly asked, uh, could they conceive of this having happened, sexual relations between uh, the same-sex, heterosexual relationships? And it seemed that most of them found this uh, pretty humorous and said, we never would have had time, or, or the privacy.
2: Well, if that's probably true, although there are people who say, oh, well, it could have happened, and they will give you know scenarios. But in fact, the way it works, it has worked on the shuttle, is that people's time was uh, plotted out, the last, every single moment, there, there wasn't much free time. Uh, there's also a, a majority of the time they're in the shuttle, they're being videotaped by someone. Uh, and then, uh, as, my, as Janice Voss uh, pointed out, that she's pointed to the hammocks being just eight inches apart. Nothing could really happen uh, that was not known to everyone uh unless i mean people could slip off into uh a laboratory there is that 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 exists in the cargo hold when they're having a science mission but, you know i who can tell but uh if it if it has happened no one's talking about it and i really suspect that nothing did happen there's also the prob the possibility that nothing could happen uh no one really knows if uh the, the uh, <laughs> male body will respond physiologically uh, in low gravity. No one knows what the uh, testosterone level is. They haven't looked at any hormones. So we really just don't know.
0: Well, I suspect we're going to find out uh, one way or another someday, whether it's a part of formal research or uh, or, or informally done.
2: Well, I think it would be uh, one would not leave, set people off on a trip to Mars without knowing some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just isn't way we all function it would be dangerous
0: we are almost out of time and there is so much more we could talk about in this book which is absolutely packed with uh, stories about the history of women in space a story that is still just barely getting underway and i should say that the book is published recently enough that you are even were even able to address the the tragic loss of of columbia and uh, Laurel Clark and Casey uh, Chala. uh, Did you meet both of them?
2: No, I just met Casey. I was only interviewing women who had already flown, and Laurel Clark was a rookie uh, on the Columbia flight.
0: Mm. If you had to size up this latest crop of astronauts coming from around the world, do you reach any conclusions about uh, the future of women in space?
2: Well, I think that uh, all the women I met were absolutely wonderful. They were highly intelligent, but they were uh, extraordinarily (laughs) non-egocentric. They were people who were able to work well with other people. They were not people who were looking to be famous. Uh, They were people who loved their work. They are people who love their work. Uh, And each one of them is uh, really a very different, special person. They don't fall into any category. I think that uh, right now women make up, oh, somewhere around 25%, maybe maybe less, of the astronaut corps. I don't think uh, there is a quota. I don't think there has been. At first, they wanted to make sure they didn't just take one woman. NASA was very careful not to have token women, so they started with six. Uh, I think we need more women studying mathematics and science and going into these fields, and then we will have more women astronauts.
0: Professor uh, Kevles, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Well, Uh,
2: it's been wonderful talking to you. It
0: has been a great pleasure both talking to you and reading your book, which is Almost Heaven, the Story of Women in Space by Betty Ann Kevlis. It is out from Basic Books right now, and I assume it is available all over the place, including Amazon. Uh, And uh, that means it's also available through the Planetary Society website. And I know you'll be visiting the Planetary Society this week for a book signing and uh, some acknowledgement of this accomplishment.
2: I'm looking forward to being in California again.
0: Yes, we should say that you mentioned in the beginning of the book that you uh, almost literally grew up in the shadow of uh, Caltech and the Planetary Society. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you for the plug, and uh, we hope the book is very successful.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And I'll be back with Bruce Betts right after we hear one more time from Emily.
1: and back with Q&A. How is the astronomical unit, the distance between the Earth and Sun, determined? An accurate determination had to wait for the introduction of the telescope. In 1672, Jean-Dominique Cassini found a solar distance of roughly 10,000 Earth diameters, an estimate only 10% off of the real value. Cassini made observations of Mars from Paris at the same time that his colleague, Jean Richer, observed from Cayenne in French Guiana and use the difference in angles to determine the Earth's distance from the Sun. More accurate telescopes and clocks have allowed this estimate to be improved upon over time, at the same time that we have determined the other planets' distances from the Sun. Mars is relatively close to the Sun, at one and a half astronomical units away. But the next planet, Jupiter, is five astronomical units from the Sun, or five times as far from the Sun as the Earth is. Cold Pluto averages a whopping 40 astronomical units. But there are still bigger distances in space. The nearest star, for example, is over 250,000 astronomical units from the sun. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: Time again for what's up with Bruce Betts? Bruce, you putting up the Christmas decorations?
4: Oh, getting getting close. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> Trying not to hurt ourselves.
0: Because a minute ago, I there was a hammer and nails going, and I heard the hammer uh, uh, even on the on the phone. So
4: oh, that was my two year old.
0: Uh, that's good. That's good. Get them started early.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, we moved to power tools when they turned three.
0: <laughs> what have you got for us?
4: Well, we've got a all those naked eye planets being naked eye if you're really looking for them in the uh, dusk. Just after sunset southwest, Venus really easy to see because it's incredibly bright. And if you look to the lower right of Venus, you might be able to pull out Mercury. Uh, Mars is up at, also at sunset and in the south looking reddish orangish, much dimmer than Venus. And Jupiter you'll see rising in the east around midnight and really high in the south at dawn. And Saturn rises uh, roughly at sunset and, and, and sets uh, shortly before dawn. Good stuff.
0: And we want the audience to know that Bruce's mention of naked-eye planets has nothing to do with the fact that sex came up on uh, today's planetary radio for the first time and possibly ever.
4: That is true. (laughs) You've actually rendered me speechless. (laughs) Well, let's move on to this week in space history before I stop being speechless. Um, December 14th, a couple big dates in exploration history. In 1962, the first flyby of another planet by a spacecraft as the U.S. robotic spacecraft Mariner 2 flew past Venus.
1: Ten years later,
4: now 31 years ago since a human was on the moon. 31 years ago, Apollo 17 astronaut Gene Cernan became the last astronaut to walk on the moon.
0: Wow, that was this week. Indeed,
4: indeed it was. This week in space history.
0: Wouldn't you agree that's much too long? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And
4: certainly all of the... uh, People like Gene Cernan never imagined it would be that long until we were back. So, yeah, much too long since we played really anywhere out of low-Earth orbit. But that would get us off on a philosophical discussion. Instead, I prefer to go on to Random Space Fact. Do you play golf, Matt?
0: I uh, took lessons when I was 10 and uh, was so bad that I joined a swim team.
4: Okay. Well, this is one of those silly analogies that you can, you can do with uh, planetary exploration involving golf. The Voyager spacecraft delivery accuracy at Neptune, which is about 100 kilometers, divided by the trip distance, which was about 7,128,603,456 kilometers approximately. Give or take. That was the equivalent of sinking a 3,630-kilometer golf shot. <laughs> Although Voyager, as opposed to a golf shot, was allowed a few minor trajectory adjustments along the way.
0: Uh, we have saved a lot of time for trivia here. We better roll right <laughs> on to it. I'm just going to roll right on past long, that, that hole in one.
4: So last week we asked you, uh, what, what's the pizza moon? What's known as the pizza
0: moon? We had more entries than usual this week, and more of them that were uh, worth mentioning. Uh, and Pizza I, I, brings out the best in people. It really does. Everybody loves pizza, you know? These are not the winners, folks. These are just people who had great answers. They're not
4: losers either.
0: (laughs) No one's a loser on Planetary Radio. Alan Siprich, an old friend of Planetary Radio in Hudson, Pennsylvania, he said the name actually derives from the moon's saucy appearance and not, as some may speculate, Galileo's shameless attempt to further interest in Italian cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's one from Barry Olson of Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Keep that location in mind. The pizza moon is Io with lots of good Canadian back bacon. I hope, eh? <laughs> Jupiter's Io is the moon that is sometimes referred as the pizza moon, but you can't have it delivered, nor would you want to. Sulfur and anchovies would not go down well. That from Bill Magnuson of uh, Malden, Massachusetts, and uh, Sean O'Leary, another regular. He had it. He gave us everything you wanted to know about Io that you could fit into a single email and uh, had the, uh, the, the palette, uh, the chemical basis, or, or possibly the chemical basis of the palette. Uh, the green, he said, green silicate or sulfur and sulfur and lava mixed, white, sulfur dioxide frost, black, rock or ferrous sulfide, and red, sulfur gas. And then, uh, oh, and yellow, I left out yellow, solid sulfur.
4: Yeah, okay, close enough.
0: <laughs> but anyway you probably want to know who the actual winner was after all that
4: i do and i think everyone else out there does Man, really please, please tell us
0: brian morgan brian morgan of park falls wisconsin said jupiter's moon io is sometimes known as the pizza moon congratulations brian
4: congratulations uh, obviously because of the the appearance especially in some of the images that have been uh, souped up to make them look prettier looks a little like pizza this week we're going to be a little more boring, but if people want to picture pizza while you're answering this question. <laughs> what was the name of the Apollo 17 lunar module? Of course, the, the classic uh, Apollo 11 lines involving the Eagle. has landed. The eagle was the lunar module there. Apollo 17, the last lunar module on the moon. What is its name?
0: So how can people get those entries to us?
4: Go to Follow the links to Planetary Radio. In and fact, you can actually go to our new URL if you'd like, planetary.org slash radio.
0: Oh, now wait a minute. I didn't know about that.
4: Yeah, well, the host is always the last to know.
0: No, I thought maybe you were saving that as sort of a nice uh, birthday surprise, except that it's not my birthday.
4: I was going to say, happy birthday. <laughs> it is, it is. We thought after one, you know, a one-year anniversary, maybe it should have its own special, easy-to-remember URL, planetary.org slash radio.
0: There you go, folks. Well, we have our own private URL now, but you know what? Even if you just do planetary.org, you'll see the radio show there.
4: Indeed. Look up at the night sky, everyone, and think of what you like on your pizza. Thank you, and good night.
0: <laughs> and I thought he was going to say, and think of anchovies. Close enough. That was Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He is here each week with What's Up. As always, thanks for listening. Please tell us what you think of planetary radio. Write to planetary radio, that's one word. At planetary.org. See you next week.